Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Listeners, she married him. We are in the last chapter of Jane Eyre, and my summary will be short this week because this chapter is a quintessential happily ever after. A trope Bronte helped invent, but that we all know pretty well now. Rochester and Jane get married and have babies. Jane goes and checks on Adele, who's at a school that Jane finds too strict. So Jane moves Adele to a better school, and Adele gets the French educated right out of her. Diana and Mary both marry happily, and Jane and her cousins visit one another often. Rochester even gets some of his sight back. The only thing that isn't a typical happily ever after about this ending is the last paragraph of the novel. It is Sinjin Rivers, not our author and narrator Jane, who gets the last paragraph and the last word. It's a Bible quote that he ends us with in a letter he writes to Jane, telling her of his upcoming death. He's quoting the last line of the book of Revelation. He who testifies says, surely I am coming soon. Amen, come Lord Jesus. Not quite the typical, and they lived happily ever after vibe. One of the things that makes a romance novel a romance novel is the fact that the main focus of the story is on the two characters who fall in love. There are often epilogues like this one in Jane Eyre that give you a glimpse of the life that our two lovers have made for themselves. But Bronte's odd ending is something that has plagued scholars for decades. Why give Sinjin the last word? But when I started this project, treating Jane Eyre as sacred nearly 10 years ago, I have to admit that I loved that Charlotte Bronte gave the last line of the last book of the Bible to her novel as well. I hate that she put it in the mouth of a man, but claiming that level of authority seemed like one last act of resistance, at least part of the way. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Lauren Sandler. And this is On Air from Hot and Bothered. Oh, Vanessa, you keep making me feel and think things, especially about the elements of faith in this book that would never, ever occur to me. And it, it so relates to what I wanted to talk about in terms of you know, what I think we might need to know today in discussing the conclusion of this book, which is that end, that end, which has always perplexed me. I mean, I will admit, and we will get into this, the entire conclusion perplexes me <laughs> in many ways. But ending on a Bible quote and ending on Sinjin's story is perhaps one of the elements of the book that has always rankled me the most. Yeah. But you said something, it may have just been last week about anticipating her Christian readership that really got me thinking about it. And so I started looking into some criticism of the book when it came out. And certainly it was lionized by many. You know, the publication The Era wrote, all serious novel writers of the day lose in comparison with Currer Bell. 
But as soon as Carter Bell was outed as a woman, there was a wave of criticism that then attacked the book as coarse and immoral and certainly as unchristian. I don't know if this review in the London Quarterly, which is sort of the most famous quoted review about the book, was actually written before or after the book was known to be written by Bronte. And that's something I should have looked into. But I do think that the language of this review is really worth noting. And then I'm going to tell you a little bit about who wrote it. So the lead critic wrote that altogether, the autobiography of Jane Eyre is preeminently an anti-Christian composition. It is true Jane does right and exerts great moral strength, but it is the strength of a mere heathen mind, which is a law unto itself. No Christian grace is perceptible upon her. And that take is so interesting to me because I feel like it's such a win for secularism. (laughs) I know. I was going to say, you love that book. I know. I love that book. But what's interesting as well is the lead critic of the London Quarterly, which was, you know, one of the absolute most revered periodicals of its time, was actually a woman named Elizabeth Rigby, who was a journalist and who created this extraordinary career. And in fact, what Rigby's main criticism of the book is, is not that it's unchristian, though she certainly goes on about that and it is quoted a ton about, you know, that disapproval of the book, but that Bronte doesn't solve what is known as the governess problem, which is that even though Jane can work for a living, she works for such a pittance that she will always be in poverty, right? So it talks about how Jane is being paid 16 pounds a year, which no one could survive on. And that if Bronte was really taking the poverty seriously and the inequality seriously that she's writing about, instead of having Jane marry the master, the governesses would have unionized. And I just think it's so interesting the way that both Bronte and her most quoted opposition critic both are sort of working with these notions of Marxism, of marriage, of these tropes, and never quite finding a satisfying end to any of them. And yet using Christianity as this thing that they need to lean into to make what they have to say palatable. And we know that Bronte was Christian. And to my mind, she was writing a Christian book. She just also needed to be mindful all the time of her readership. And I can't help but wonder if the way that she wraps up this book specifically with St. John's missionary story and quoting the Bible is to leave her scandalized reader with a reminder that she too is a Christian and that at the end of the day, she is as devoted to the Bible and the notion of God as someone who might feel that a woman's desire and power somehow exists at odds with that, that perhaps that synthesis is part of her intention here, even if it makes my skin crawl. I also think she's trying to say, yes, I sort of trashed Sinjin, but also I, I believe in the work of the missionary. And I think that the work that he's doing is really important. She doesn't want the fact that Jane doesn't want to go with Sinjin to be conflated in the reader's mind with contempt for missionary work. But that that can be the last word of the novel is so crazy, isn't I it? Know. I want it to be something about Jane at the end. All of the ways that she makes the end of the novel about men really <laughs> frustrates me. It's also, of course, what we fear will happen to women when they become wives, right? And There is all of this gorgeous writing about what true companionate love looks like in these pages. But as much as I venerate that language and I yearn for that feeling and feel lucky to have felt it at times and sort of exult in those descriptions, it feels so overshadowed to me by her life of service to a man right now. And the fact that the entire conclusion feels in service to men so often is something that I find quite heartbreaking. I do think it's so funny, like the beginning of this conclusion about Sinjin is as to Sinjin Rivers, he left England, he went to India, he entered on the path, right? 
And then, you know, in, in these last paragraphs, one of the opening sentences is Sinjin is unmarried. And I think that after a whole novel that was so skeptical about marriage, the fact that the beginning of this chapter is reader, I married him. But one of the very last things of this chapter is Sinjin is unmarried. This marriage as somehow significant of an ending or not is really a book has to either end with marriage or death. It ends with Jane's marriage and it ends for Sinjin with Sinjin's death. And those are how the stories end. And I think in tropes, that's absolutely true. I also think it's worth noting that Sinjin has had the freedom to not marry. Sinjin has had the freedom to follow his ambitions and his desires to India on his own and do this on his own terms and die on his own terms. And one of the things that I am really struggling with, despite how loved and happy Jane is telling us that she is, and, you know, and I believe her. I mean, this the language that Bronte uses to communicate this is something that I think one can't help but feel so deeply, so uniquely. These are not cliches of love. This is closely observed, deeply, deeply felt love. But it does strike me that Jane is experiencing this love in service to this man in this domestic setting when what she really craved was to wander the world as Rochester had done as, you know, Sinjin. I mean, Sinjin's not wandering the world, but he has chosen to go to India by himself. He gets to do that as an unmarried man. And I want for Jane a life in which she gets to discover the world the way that she had wanted to, the way a man would want to in the Victorian age. And she does describe the pleasure of her service to her husband, but she also does describe it as service. I mean, her life is very consumed with living in service to this man in this house. And that is not the end I wanted for her. I mean, I think what's so interesting is that as Jane ages over the novel, her desires change, right? At Gateshead, what she wanted was to be loved. She's reading this book of birds, and so she clearly is interested in this idea of adventure. But the reason that she wants to leave is because she's despised. And the reason that Lowood becomes bearable to her is not because she's seeing the world, but because Helen and Miss Temple care about her. And there are finally people in her life who care about her. And I, I think it sort of changes over time. And then she meets Mr. Rochester and she loves him, but is like very skeptical about marrying him because she doesn't want the trappings of it. She doesn't want the collar necklace, right? Like she doesn't want all of the money or for people to think that she's you know, only marrying him for the money. And so I think that as she like grows up and as she gets traumatized and as she learns, right, Bronte seems to be arguing that like, this is a form of domestic bliss that is so happy that she's not in a phase of her life where she wants to see the world. That is something that I am resisting all the way, I would say, because this is something that has been told to women forever, right? You know, settle down, be a wife, serve your husband, you'll be happy. That's the bliss that you really want in the world. And one of the things that I valued so much about younger Jane, and I know I'm a broken record about this, loving younger Jane more than older Jane throughout this book, but is this refusal to be told this is what's going to make you happy as a woman. That is something that she denies, she denies, she denies. And then that's what she's given. And in fact, they were right all along. It is marriage that is the answer. Yes, it's a companionate, equal marriage. It's a love-driven marriage instead of a property-driven marriage. But it is still a life of service as a wife within a domestic environment, which Bronte is telling us is the answer to Jane's happiness. And obviously... Bronte has absorbed these messages through her life, but she's also giving us the message to absorb through ours. And as much as she has given us all of these different elements of this book that we carry forward, this to me is one of the things that we carry forward as much as anything else. The only thing I'll say in defense of her, because I obviously agree with everything you said, is that I think that this was genuinely what she wanted, right? She was in love with this man, her boss, and she just wanted domestic bliss with him and to serve him. And 
to write that for herself, I think is like a very beautiful exercise of self-care. And of course, I want her to want something different, but it's it just seems really genuine to her. We also know that Charlotte Bronte was incredibly ambitious, right? Like she obviously was ambitious. You don't sit down to write a 600 page novel without any ambition. And of course, we know that Jane did, too. And right? that I mean, <laughs> to your point, yes, I think that that the degree of her own desire in this is why it's written so effectively. And the ambition is inherent in this. Like it should be noted. I should have noted earlier that yes, Jane may not be traveling the world, but obviously when Rochester is sitting quietly by the fire, she's scratching it away at the paper and writing this book at the age of 29. And that's an extraordinary thing. And then, I mean, my question is Rochester gets his sight back at least partially And I don't know what Bronte wants us to think about that. If it's like, well, he's really sorry. So God gives him a little bit of his sight back, right? Because they go to London for that. And you can sort of believe that, you know, these next 10 years could be full of adventure for them as a couple. And I, regardless of like the ableism wrapped up in that, which I certainly don't think was on the mind of any author in the 19th century, I also don't quite know what Bronte is up to. It feels like a divine intervention. Like Rochester in the previous chapter made a convincing enough apology to God that God is like, okay, you can get a little bit of your sight back. At least that's how I've always read it. I wonder what you think. Uh, I don't know. It feels like such a throwaway to me, honestly. It feels like, (laughs) oh, it can't be such a perfect happy ending if he's completely blind. So we'll make him a little less blind, but we won't make him so physically equal to Jane that they no longer have equality in their relationship. And there's something that feels like, you know, there's the ableism in there, of course. And then there's also the notion of within whatever Bronte's physical bias that that playing field needs to stay leveled, if only like maybe a little bit more restored. (laughs) I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. So, Lauren, for a close reading, it it almost feels inevitable that we have to do this line that is probably the most famous line in the novel and really one of the most famous lines in all of literature, right? This reader, I married him. It's funny, right? It's it's so succinct and yet it is so pervasive in the literary imagination Well, I think it's worth thinking about what it is as a piece of writing, what it was then and what it has become. So as a piece of writing, I think it's really worth flagging the active voice in this, right? Reader, I married him, not we got married (laughs) or even he married me. She married him. She is the subject and he is the object. And that is not what marriage was. Marriage was something that Even if a woman desired it, even if, you know, all the Blanche Ingrams of the world put on those push-up bras and went to the ball and worked their asses off to land a Rochester, 
This is a different way of landing a marriage, and it is one that Jane is very much owning for herself. Just as she has centered herself in this whole narrative, she centers herself in this sentence, in this declaration, she married him. And there's something that is revolutionary about that. I also think that because it's such a short sentence, it's there's something that feels sort of abrupt and private about it, as in, you know, you know what they get to do when they get married. <laughs> there's there's something, it, it feels like redolent of sex to me in a certain way. Like that period is a little bit of a wink. Like I married him, you don't get the next clause. <laughs> so I feel like in there, there is all of this power and desire that we've been talking about. But of course, I think it's most famous for the word reader. And she's been addressing us throughout. There's a sort of intimacy in there. She's acknowledging that she as a writer has an audience and that Jane as an author has an audience. It's telling us that. And it may seem like a bit of a sort of twee trope right now, but I feel like Jane speaking to us is really the truest power in the book and maybe in some ways the truest desire. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I love everything that you said. I also do think the extent to which there is a feminism here, she doesn't propose to him, he proposes to her, but it's certainly like inappropriate the way that she goads a proposal out of him, right? So again, this like, I married him is this kind of claim of action, right? I didn't just sit and wait for him to propose and him to do everything. Like I went to him. She went to him even before she knew that he was available again. And she goaded him into it and teased him into it. And so I think it is advocating for a certain level of activeness for women. But it does also make me think about how, you know, this book that is known to many as being such a landmark feminist novel spends so many pages resisting marriage and then tells us that marrying him is the answer. And on the one hand, yes, it is in a very radical way stripping down an old form of marriage to replace it with a new one, but it's still replacing it with a new one. And so I think that it is part of its legacy is continuing to venerate marriage. And I typed reader, I married him into Etsy last night and 237 products popped up and they weren't like things that people had embroidered themselves. Like they weren't like little works of craft. They were being mass produced by, you know, T-shirt manufacturers and the zazzles of the world out there. And there's something about commodifying this and women wearing it as one would wear a bride sash that just, I don't know, it rubs me the wrong way. It doesn't feel like like it springs from the Jane who I fell in love with. I mean, the thing that rubs me the wrong way is that 200 years later, marriage is still an accomplishment. And that if you haven't done it, your life is just not as real. I have a woman who I'm not friends with anymore because she absolutely believed that once she was married, her life was realer than mine. I, I was going on a trip or something and she was like, yeah, I wish I could do things like that, but I have a real life and responsibilities. And I was like, oh, I didn't know I didn't have those things. I thought I just prioritized travel in my life. So it does make me then wonder, okay, what if Bronte had given us a conclusion where Jane and Rochester go off to France together instead of being in Ferndine? It makes me wonder what what possibility could have come from that version of Jane getting married and how it would have built a different version of who we could be. Not to lay it all on Bronte, but this book has lasted. And I think that it is worth thinking about what it seeds for all of us and how culture gets replicated. But Lauren, you know, he doesn't need to be in search of mistresses anymore. And they don't need to outrun the fact that he actually has a wife in the attic, right? Like none of the travel in this book, unfortunately, has been virtuous in any way, right? It's either been tied to the slave trade or to running away from 
a wife. Right. Even Adele comes from abroad. And as you've said, now they need to educate the French out of her. Sinjin goes to India and it kills him. Sure. Right. Like an English wind goes all the way to Jamaica and Rochester. I picture him like a cartoon animal that like sniffs food into the kitchen, you know, is he's like, oh, I have to go back to England. Right. Like all roads lead back <laughs> to Mother England where the sprites and the elves are. And they're like back in that area. Right. They're like in this Ferndean, this like green, overgrown country house. And Rochester has his little wood sprite, his pale fairy Jane. And now they have their little spritelets. I know. I mean, what can I say? I think there's something just grotesquely nativist about this book. It is one of the things I hate most about this book. And so perhaps it's it's not so much my wanting Jane to get what she wants, but me wanting Bronte to just want something different and to feel something different about where she comes from. I mean, it's just so Victorian. A Victorian novel traditionally follows someone either from birth to death or like isolation to marriage. And this is also Victorian in terms of expanding the British Empire. Victoria gained land and lost none that Elizabeth garnered, right? And like, and there is just this belief, this like profound, profound belief that the British people had cracked the correct way to live. And that if you did it in the British way, it was the mannered and most polite way. And if you did it in any other way, it wasn't. And never mind the fact that millions of people are dying from typhus and that millions of children are dying from poverty. Like, who cares? The British way is the polite way and therefore the right way. I think that this book is unwittingly part of that message, part of that Victorian message. And I also think that that Victorian message is just like still absolutely in like the Etsy mugs we drink out of, but like just an implicit bias everywhere all the time. It's incredible how successful of an experiment that was. And it's worth noting that, you know, as much as it is frustrating that this book ends on a man's voice, it is the man who is out there spreading ideological imperialism. You know, it is choosing what the British are doing in India as the true ending of the book, as the thing that is worth revering beyond everything else. Yeah, it's endlessly troubling. One of the very few things that I like about this last chapter is there's still an acknowledgement of money in a way that I find interesting, right? The first thing that Jane does when she comes back from marrying Rochester is tell Mary and John that they have gotten married and she hands them each five pounds, which within the scope of this novel is an incredible amount of money. Jane gets paid 15 pounds a year at St. John's school, right? Five pounds is a lot of money, and there's this like interruption of Jane, you know, preventing Adele from going through the same thing that she went through, right? There still seems to be this attentiveness to the materiality of life that Bronte is glimpsing at. It's not all like healing eyes and ascending to God, right? Like there's still some like housekeeping, making sure that we don't forget that marriage is also very much about financial transactions and financial realities. Even when you marry for love. Even when you marry for love. It's like it's never gone. Lauren, in terms of desire, I see like the one thwarted desire in this last chapter being Sinjin never acknowledging her marriage to Rochester. As soon as she gets married, she writes a letter to Diana and Mary being like, I married him. This is why. This is what happened. They write back being like, oh, my God, we're so excited. As soon as your honeymoon is over, we'll be there visiting. And she writes Sinjin in Cambridge saying the same thing. And he doesn't write back and then is like, hey, how's the weather? Just like never acknowledging <laughs> that, like she got married. And this seems to be a little bit of like not 
petty, but it's such ex-boyfriend behavior. And it's like, dude, you're not her ex. Stop acting like the ex. (laughs) And she wants us to know, right, that he was petty about this and that he like never acknowledged, like never sent a gift. I think that shows how entitled he felt to her partnership and how absurd she continues to believe that to be, even if it's like, sure, let's keep up correspondence. I continue to be proud of you. Sure, let's not talk about the guy I'm screwing happily all the time and my two children. (laughs) That were clearly immaculately conceived. (laughs) I mean, I've been so cranky about this conclusion. And it's I swear it's not me just like playing the role of the foil through this whole podcast. Whenever I feel this crankiness, you get to feel this crankiness coming through me. But I will say for all of my frustration with what Bronte has left us with, she has also left us with some of my absolute favorite language about love that has ever been written. And We've dissected what I think is so problematic about this conclusion, but I feel like this almost isn't something to dissect what I want to read out loud, but just to sit with. And I wonder if we could just sit in appreciation of a paragraph here for a moment. Please. I bet you I'll be able to guess because it's so lovely, but please go. It's so lovely. So Jane tells us that she's now been married 10 years. She writes, To be together is for us to be at once as free as in solitude, as gay as in company. We talk, I believe, all day long. To talk to each other is but a more animated and an audible thinking. I mean, I don't love this next part as much, but... (laughs) All my confidence is bestowed on him. All his confidence is devoted to me. We are precisely suited in character. Perfect concord is the result. I mean, God, that notion of talking as being a more animated and audible form of thinking. It's just one of my favorite lines ever written. And what she describes in this paragraph, I am so entirely convinced by in part because I've never read it before. And I don't know that I've read it since. I mean, putting this language to what this love feels like, it's a gift and it's a goal. Vanessa, do you have any feelings about about this beautiful bit of, of literature here? Well, you and I have the same favorite line, that idea that speaking to somebody else is just a form of thinking out loud and that there would be no self-censorship and sort of, right, like this is a marriage that sounds like even though it's a marriage of service, the way she describes it is a marriage of no compromise, that there's nothing that she thinks that would hurt his feelings, right? Like this is just a complete, fantasy. It's like this platonic ideal of romantic love that you can just have like an alien-like mind meld with the other person. But then my crankiness comes back in. Yeah. Well, you're you. Because I'm me. (laughs) And because I continue to remember that this is where the book ends, but where Jane's relationship with Rochester begins and indeed all of it until she leaves Thornfield is one that I cannot get behind. And so, yes, we end up in this place where I don't believe that she's trying to convince us of something that she does not feel herself and yet how she came to feel it herself and the circumstances of this relationship is something that continues to trouble me. We certainly see examples of grooming of employers and far less powerful employees of the sort of manipulation and betrayal throughout our society. It's indeed what the entire Me Too movement has been about. And we also know that it is something that happens in headline cases and also behind closed doors all the time. And that there are times when 
the heart shifts in these circumstances, but many, many more in which it doesn't. And the psychology of what it means to come to love a person in the sort of situation that Jane found herself in as a governess at Thornfield, it is still the background to this paragraph. And I think it's worth mentioning because I'm so uncomfortable with it. I want Jane to feel this way. I don't want her to feel this way as an end to the situation we found her in. Well, I don't even know that I want Jane to feel this way. Like this book believes in true love, right? And a love that can reach out and you can hear it across the wind. And something that we didn't quite talk about in our last episode is the fact that Jane chooses not to tell Rochester that she heard him calling for her across the wind, right? She's like, that would freak him out too much. I'm not going to tell him. And that's like the only nod to the fact that like, this is weird between them. So I believe in like incredibly strong love and incredible attachment and like, you know, feeling so attracted or bewitched by someone that it feels magical. I do not believe that there is someone in this world to whom you should share every thought. Like, I don't want people to feel shame. I think that I love the idea in certain spaces that like God could love all of your thoughts. But this book is is arguing a true love that matches the kind of love of God like as embodied in man, it seems like a beautiful secularization of God's love that like we can love each other like that. And as an ideal, I love it. And in a practical way, it's just, it's not true. Well, it is so interesting that as you mentioned before, you know, Bronte's writing this is her own wish fulfillment. I wonder if reading it is her own wish fulfillment and if that is what we turn to novels for often. And I think it's really fascinating what we respond to in novels, what we reach for, what we want, how much people want to feel something that can't seem to exist in such perfection in life and how other people want to sort of deal with the trauma of that absence of perfection. Which doesn't mean we all just live in two camps. I mean, I'm, there's plenty of cross-pollination there. But I kind of want then the next entire section of the book where Jane goes off to check on Adele and it turns out that Rochester has had a maid come to the house and tend to him. And Jane has to confront this and realize that it was all a sham and that even with Bertha gone, she still gets to feel the way that she feared she was going to feel about herself before. And what does she do with that? Okay, she's going to go to France on her own. I want that book. But I don't know that many people want that book. And I think that it's interesting what our own relationship is to wish fulfillment. I mean, I just want the book that adds the clause. And there were moments in which talking was like thinking out loud, right? Just like acknowledging that they, it is not possible to live in perfect bliss every moment of every day. And again, I, you know, it gets back to intention and like how subversive Bronte is attempting to be. Because I do think saying that you can have this kind of paradise on earth is a subversive act that I do want to laud her for. That she's saying, look, two people can have a kind of communion that is just as fulfilling as what Sinjin is up to. And like, I am experiencing paradise now, and that is something we should all be able to do. I love that a, a lot. Lauren, we did it. We read Jane Eyre together. <sighs> I don't want it to end. <laughs> well, it's not over yet. We're going to do an episode where we talk about all of our thoughts and feelings about the whole book. And then we're going to do Party and Prejudice. I'm excited. If you think I'm cranky about Jane Eyre, what do you see me about Pride and Prejudice? Oh, my God. I'm excited for Pride and Prejudice because I'm not sure I know what I think about it. So I'm really. I think that's how I feel as well. Although I really thought that I knew what I thought about Jane Eyre and reading it with you has complicated all of that. I mean, this is the glorious thing about reading with another person and reading with all the people we've gotten to speak to through this podcast. 
I'm excited to make sense of it all in whatever way we might next week. Well, it is time for our final phone call. You know, we've had a thread through this podcast, of course. You know, we've spent so many episodes revisiting The Mad Woman in the Attic and revisiting the criticism of Sandra Gilbert and Susan Gubar. So for our final interview, it would be hard to imagine a better call to place than to one of these OGs of feminist criticism who put their stamp on this book as much as anyone ever and put their stamp on so much writing by women through the Victorian era and beyond. And in fact, they're still at it. They have a new book out this year on writers of second wave feminism called, and I love this and I think you will too, Still Mad. American Women Writers and the Feminist Imagination. So let's get Sandra Gilbert on the phone, shall we? Hi, Sandra. Oh, hello, Lauren. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. It's always a treat to speak with you. My pleasure. So it's obviously a different cultural discourse that we are having right now, right, than the one that existed 40 years ago when you and Susan published Mad Women in the Attic. I'm wondering if any of your thoughts have changed about the book in those decades and especially in our, our current cultural moment. I think that I, I was I was criticized a long time ago. I I'm, I'm the, was the author of the Jane Eyre section of the book. And I was criticized a long time ago by Gayatri Chakravorty Spivak for failing to emphasize the fact that birth of, of Rochester is really a, a racially marked other. And she's a product of the sugar industry in Jamaica at that time. So that she's locked up in the attic means that not only Jane has a significant other in the attic, I mean, an other self, a kind of id or desirous unconscious that she's not able to express, but also that the house itself has an id in the attic. It has this, this id of colonialism that's locked up in the attic. And that is really in a way, uh, no one thought it was shameful at the time, but we can now read it as a shameful secret of the whole culture. So that complicates the book in an interesting way. And I, I guess I would now want to add that and I, I did add, and I wrote another piece about Jane Eyre, about Jane Eyre at the movies, and I added something about the sexuality in Jane Eyre, because really people were shocked by the sexuality of Jane Eyre, by the passion that Rochester expresses for Jane and that Jane really has for Rochester. And of course, Spivak is the post-colonialist theorist who we've also talked about on this podcast who came up around the same time as you, but had a very different reading right. of the dynamics of this book. Does it seem like we're finally synthesizing all these varied ways to think about literature and to think about the experience of critically reading? Or do things still seem sort of siloed and the idea of what is problematic is pushing people apart in certain ways? Well, I hope that we're synthesizing. I know that I'm trying to. I think that um, Susan and I, in working on Still Mad, our new book, we're very conscious of intersectionality and of the way intersectionality shapes all kinds of literary texts. And you could say that, although there was no concept of intersectionality in Bronte's England, there is an intersectionality that's shaping her text in the, in, in view in the, from the perspective of cultural criticism. There is the whole background of, of the sugar trade. There is the whole background of colonialism. And there is, of course, the background of classism, where Jane is, is this impoverished governess. And that I understood the role of the governess. We have been looking at this book through two frames, which I think we've realized are really one frame, which are power and desire. And 
I wonder, thinking about Rochester and Jane's relationship with Rochester, specifically from a sort of post-Me Too standpoint, how do you feel about this relationship and that this is the person that Jane desires and that Rochester's desire for Jane is the thing that she seems to want as much as anything else in the world? Well, I think they recognize in each other. He is certainly a Byronic hero of the sort that Bronte was fascinated by. And though she seems to be poor, plain and little, she is certainly a Byronic heroine. And he knows that when he looks at her paintings, for one thing. And even when he first meets her on the road, when his horse falls and she seems to be some some apparition, the fact that she's, quote, again, poor, plain and little doesn't mean that she's of no account. On the contrary, it gives her this sort of um, of ghostly or magical or otherworldly quality that he he seems to see in her. It's a Byronic relationship. And, and those kinds of things go back to, I mean, I don't know how much you've talked about the juvenilia that the Bronte children wrote. Charlotte wrote this whole collection of stories that were the Angrian tales. And, and in, in a way, he is, he is without question one of the heroes of Angria. And she is like one of the heroines. And yet, He's also her 40-year-old boss. Yeah. And she is this 19-year-old virginal specter who's barely spoken to a man before in her life. And now that we have the word grooming in our public discourse, now that we are thinking about, you know, what workplace romance or r- workplace abuse, and I think that this story can be read as both or either, depending on one's perspective. I mean, does the whole thing just leave you feeling like, how is this a feminist book if this is the story? The way it works in the book, it seems to me to be pretty clear that she does speak truth to power. She's, she's aware of his power, but she speaks truth to it. And when he really starts playing games with her, she gets mad and she talks back. And then and then indeed, when he wants her to run away with him to the south, she runs away to the north by herself and seeks strength from the motherly, from the maternal moon. I once wrote a revision of Jane Eyre that I called Reader, I Didn't Marry Him. Oh, tell us, tell us. Well, it's just she doesn't marry him. She goes south with him. And uh, she has all sorts of adventures. And then at a certain point, she encounters Bertha. And it turns out that Bertha has a has an old boyfriend from Jamaica that she's been calling to. And so the romance plot ends very happily with Bertha getting married to her, her boyfriend from Jamaica. And uh, <laughs> I'm afraid she burns down the house, of course. But <laughs> So our listeners will know that this is a very vindicating and validating moment for me because I've spent so much of, <laughs> of our conversations about her decision to leave feeling so frustrated with the fact that she didn't just run off to the south of France. I always want her to go every time I read this. This book, but oh it's- well, it's wonderful when she runs off to the south of France and then she becomes a novelist. She writes a book called Jane Eyre in my book, <laughs> which no one has yet published. I have to say. Well, so our co-host Vanessa, who is you know dear and brilliant, has actually done a very good job convincing me in many ways that Jane was understanding the system that she was in and that if she were to become pregnant as a mistress, if Rochester were to have his wandering eye and treat her like he's treated so many of his mistresses, she would just be knocked up and left for nothing. Do you think that that there was this deep prudishness in Bronte thinking that the only happily ever after that Jane could have with Rochester was exactly the way the book is structured in the end? Or do you think that there was a larger comment about why she couldn't run off to the south of France, but our more modern souls just want it badly enough? Well, George Eliot ran off with George Henry Lewis and they didn't get married. I mean, I think that it was, it was something that Bronte could have could have imagined, but she didn't think it would be marketable. And it probably wouldn't have been. I mean, Elliot may have done that herself, but she never wrote books in which anybody ran off. I just did it because it gave me pleasure to write about how wonderful it was. When, by the way, when she when they go in my book to the south of France, she publishes this book, which is her autobiography, 
and it's called Jane Eyre. And she makes up a pseudonym for herself. Her pseudonym is Charlotte Bronte. Oh, I love it. Yeah, she has a baby and a dog. <laughs> and she has a French, a French uh, uh, sort of doula. <laughs> <laughs> Which, of course, you know, undoes all of the shade that Bronte's throwing on the French through the whole book. <laughs> I like that you reclaimed that, too. I absolutely want you to dig this out, and I want us all to be able to read it as a book club together. <laughs> I would love fantastic. that. I would love that. <sighs> so... Is Jane Eyre a book that you love? I've always tried to figure this out. That I love? Oh, of course I adore it. It was the source of the Mad Woman. I mean, it was the source of the title, right? Of course. It's just you have, I mean, you have such a fascinating read of the book and you do such a thorough job as a critic that a reader doesn't necessarily know if you're cuddling up with this or if you're passing it along to every young woman in your life. Oh, no. How I came to read it was that my eight-year-old daughter was reading it, my youngest child. And she said, this is a wonderful mommy. So I said, well, gee, I better reread it. So I reread it along with her. And we had a lot of fun talking about it. And then the next year I had the opportunity to teach it with Susan. And Susanna wrote me, my daughter Susanna wrote me a, a sweet note that I put on the refrigerator. I was in Bloomington, Indiana teaching and she was in Berkeley with where my whole family was. And she said, when you're lonely, dear mommy, when you're lonely, remember the wonderful seed cake. Remember with Helen and Miss Temple and Helen and the seed cake. Of course, that that Helen gives Jane, that's such a beautiful scene. Oh, I love that. It's funny, we've been talking a lot about what it means as adults to pass this book on to people who are younger. I love that it's been passed to you. And I think that sometimes we forget that 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 can be such a gift, too, and that the wisdom of people who are Jane's age reading this book is is equally as significant. Well, it's been wonderful talking to you. I do, do want to read your novelization. Okay, I'll, I'll tell my editor to publish it right away. <laughs> we'll get on that. And it was, it was just a treat to have you join us. Thank you so much. Oh, really a pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to On Air. We're hoping to read Pride and Prejudice next, but we need your help to do it. So if you can, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash hot and bothered rom pod. If you love the show, please leave us a review wherever you are listening to my beautiful voice right now. We are a Not Sorry Production, a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Ariane Nettleman and our associate producer is Molly Baxter and we are distributed by Acast. This week, we'd like to thank Sandra Gilbert, the goddess, for talking to us, Laura Glass, Julia Argy, Nikki Zolfian, Stephanie Falsell, and all of our patrons. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.